Let's remember that our Ventura campus will be joining on, on in. Uh. Hmm, could be one of those days, teaching on spiritual warfare. Let's remember that our Ventura campus will be joining us watching this sermon. So let's give them a lot of love. We love you guys at the Ventura campus. We are one church in three locations, campuses in Carpinteria, Santa Barbara, and Ventura. And Ventura is joining us on this message. We are in a series on spiritual warfare in the armor of God. This is the second week of the series from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Today is part two. We're talking about the full armor. We'll be looking at care- carefully at verse 13. So we're just going to read the whole passage, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, and uh, then we'll get into it. Before we do that, I I do want to mention that we have some uh, extra resources available to you. We have put on the website a bunch of my past teachings on spiritual warfare. There's eight or nine messages up there on spiritual warfare. In this series, we won't have the bandwidth to cover everything. We won't deal with all the stuff. There's a lot to deal with in spiritual warfare. So if you go to the sermon, or the sermon, boy, it's going to be a tough day. I cannot talk. Intercessors, please pray that I could talk. If you go to the website, you can get these old sermons. It will be fun for some of you uh, because some of them are 10 years old. And I was a different human and a different preacher 10 years ago. Uh, So that might be fun to go back and listen to those creepy messages. I will never do that, but you might enjoy it. But eight or nine sermons on spiritual warfare that will be helpful to you, some material that we probably won't get to in this series. Also, we are wanting to answer your questions. We desperately want the teaching in this series to be helpful to you. And spiritual warfare is incredibly real. And uh, it can be radical, and there's a lot that's unknown and ambiguous and difficult and strange. So we want to answer your questions. So if you send an email to thebattle at realitycarp.com or the Ventura campus, thebattle at realityventura.com, we'll get your emails, we'll read them, and we'll do our best to field your questions. We won't mention your name or anything. They'll be anonymous, don't worry. So we'll either answer them during the sermon, it's just part of the teaching, or we'll email you back directly as they did with several people this week and uh, tried to help them with those questions. So we want to help you in this and equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So with those resources in mind, more to come in the following weeks. Let's now read this wonderful passage, Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. I'm reading in the New American Standard. Paul writes and says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. 
And with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that Christ, you have won the battle. That Christ on the cross and through your resurrection and by the fact that you are ruling and reigning and coming again to establish your kingdom once and for all, you are the victorious King of kings and Lord of lords. And we thank you that when we put our faith in you, Christ, we belong to you, that you deliver us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son, that you've delivered us from fear of death because you've destroyed the work of the devil ultimately. And we now live in joy and peace and freedom before you. Thank you for these wonderful truths, Lord. And yet we confess that in this time when we're waiting for your coming, Life can be hard. Challenges can be immense. The schemes of the enemy can be manifest in our lives in all sort of disconcerting, challenging ways. Your word here is telling us that you're enabling us to stand firm and resist and to walk in victory over the enemy because Christ, you won through your cross and resurrection. And so enable your church by the preaching of your word and the working of your Holy Spirit to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. We want to see marriages saved. We want to see children walking in righteousness. We want to see men and women going to the nations. We want to see the forces of wickedness and darkness pushed back in our cities. We want to see the kingdom of God made manifest where we live. All these things have to do with spiritual warfare. And so... By your provision, we don't need to be fearful. Thank you, God. But we ought not to be foolish. Thank you, Lord. Make us ready. Teach us to stand firm, to be on the alert, and to walk in your provision. We ask that you would please help me to teach and preach and you give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, if you weren't here last week, you probably want to get that sermon online. It was kind of an introduction to this whole thing. And there we saw in verses 10, 11, and 12 that we have as Christians, because of who Christ is and what he has done for us, we have the call to strength, the call to stand, and the call to struggle. That's what we talked about last week. And the call to strength is not to try to be stronger or muster anything up. The call is to be made strong by the Holy Spirit in who Christ is and what he's done for us. That's the call there, to be made strong by God's Spirit in who Christ is and what he has done for us. And that has an incredible strengthening effect on our lives. And therefore, because we're called to such great strength in the Lord, we are called to stand. In a day when so many are falling, when so many are giving in and giving up, we are called, and we are, listen to me, saints, we are enabled to stand. We do not have to give in to the schemes of the enemy. We do not have to fall to the tactics of the enemy. We are enabled by Christ and what he's done through the Holy Spirit and his word to stand firm and resist the enemy. And it's not only a defensive stance. That phrase in the Greek, stand firm against, means to stand your ground with the intent of opposing. 
It's not that we're just kind of cowering and just letting the enemy beat on us and trying to persevere, but we are actually opposing the enemy in the strength of the Lord and in his provision. We can stand firm and push back the forces of darkness and the schemes of the enemy against our lives and our family and our communities. And then we have the call to struggle, the call to battle, if you will. And I told you last week that there in verse 12, where it says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Paul uses a unique term that he doesn't use anywhere else. And it's the term for wrestling. In that culture, the Olympic games were big. And wrestling was one of the big games. You know what I learned this week? That in the wrestling of the Olympic games during that time, the wrestler who lost had his eyes gouged out. What an obscene culture that was. But the reason that Paul uses this word here, wrestling against demonic powers, with that contextual backdrop of the one who lost, got his eyes gouged out, is to show us that the stakes are high, brothers and sisters. These are not trivial things. These are not superfluous things. That this battle that is being waged against us and also by us against the enemy. There's much at stake. Jesus said the enemy came to kill, steal, and destroy. But I came, he said, to give life and to give life abundantly. And what's at stake? The purity of our children, the well-being of our marriages, our parenting, addiction in our city, broken homes, spiritual enslavement, oppression, Sexual morality, human trafficking, abortion, all of these things are the work of the enemy in our world. And we're called to stand firm in the strength of who Christ is and what he's done and to oppose the schemes of the enemy, to push back the forces of darkness. Much is at stake. Paul says, a loser as their eyes gouge out, so to speak. Figurative language. to say that the battle is real. The enemy is real. And much is at stake. Now, in that little outline from last week, what we have there is the what we're called to, strength and standing, and the why we're called to it. Because the struggle is real. We have the what and the why. Ephesians is a great book of studying what Christ has done for us and how we're to live in light of that. But it shows us that we don't do that in a vacuum. There's true opposition. What are we called to do in light of who Christ is and what he's done? We're called to be strong in him and we're called to stand firm against the enemy. Why? Because there's a real struggle, a wrestling against Satan and demonic powers. Today's text, verse 13, gives us the how. How do we stand firm? How do we don this strength of the Lord? And it's given to us in this idea of God's armor that we'll study for the next several weeks. And today's a little bit of an introduction. Look again at verse 13, our verse for today. Therefore, right? In light of the what, you're called to strength, you're called to stand. And the why, because there's a struggle. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. 
God's armor is God's provision for God's people to stand firm and victorious in God's work. And so we'll answer these three questions right now. What exactly is the armor? How do we wear the armor? And what does it do? What is the armor of God? Paul here is drawing imagery from the book of Isaiah. Paul was apparently fond of the book of Isaiah. He quoted it frequently in his epistles. And he's drawing this imagery from the book of Isaiah. And there's a reason that he calls it the armor of God. It is indeed in the book of Isaiah, God's armor. You remember the large part of the book of Isaiah is God coming against his enemies, primarily idolatry, false gods, and nations that were following them. And so because we have a real enemy, because God is victorious, he's often pictured in scripture as a warrior, a warrior, right? Kind of like this picture, a warrior who has real army. And when Paul says the armor of God, he has this picture of God and the Messiah from Isaiah in mind. Look at Isaiah 42. Talks about God as a warrior. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The, yeah, that's a good verse for us. So is this next part. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. So this combat, this battle sort of language, God being pictured as a warrior who intends on dealing with the enemy. Part of the way that he does that is this armor. Look at Isaiah 11, verses 5 through 6. We'll put it on the screen. This is about the Messiah. This is about Christ. It said of him, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Now we begin to see where Paul's getting his language for the belt of truth, right? It's figurative language, it's imagery, it's metaphor, but he's saying that when Messiah came, he would be so righteous and faithful, it would be like a belt around him, right? A belt kind of ties our whole outfit together, but belts were also displayed for some sort of prominence, some sort of position. What would characterize and denote Messiah was faithfulness and righteousness, so the imagery of the belt. And then we hear this of God in Isaiah 59, 17 through 18. It says, God put on righteousness like a breastplate. That's exactly what Paul calls in Ephesians 6, our breastplate, the breastplate of righteousness. God put on a righteousness, righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. This is where Paul got it. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries and recompense to his enemies. Our God is a God who's mighty and victorious and plans on dealing with the enemy and has ultimately dealt with the enemy through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and will return to once and for all undo what the enemy has done. But in this season, while we're waiting for the Lord's return, though there's scope, and parameter, and limit on what the enemy can do by the grace of God. We're still subject to his schemes, and so we're called to the armor of God. God's very armor, as we see there in Isaiah. 
armor of God means that it's God's own armor. Figuratively, it's how he acts and moves in that place of battle against the enemy. Armor of God, it means it's supplied by God for the believer. That's what Ephesians is teaching us. But armor of God also means that the armor is God himself, his character, his work, and his purpose. The armor for the Christian that we're being called to put on is God himself, his character, his work, and his purpose. And specifically, Christ. Right? We saw in our passage in Ephesians 6 here that in the following weeks, we're going to be talking about the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, right? And having the gospel of peace on our feet and the shield of faith, then the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Well, all of these things find their fullness and their greatest understanding in the person of Christ. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The belt of truth, the best way to think about that, putting on Christ. Christ is our truth. The breastplate of righteousness, Christ is our righteousness. The shoes of peace, Christ is our peace. The shield of faith, Christ is the one in whom we have faith. The helmet of salvation, Christ is our salvation and our Savior. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Christ is the very word incarnate. How are we to think about spiritual battle and to stand firm and resist? Christ, his quality and character, who he is, and what he has done for us. Therefore, we begin to understand that when Paul's talking about putting on the full armor, he's talking about, or he's employing, I should say, metaphor. He's not talking about magic. He's employing metaphor. He's not talking about magic. It's symbolic language. He uses it different ways in the New Testament at different times. 1 Thessalonians 5.8, we'll put it on the screen. It says, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. Now in Ephesians 6, it's a breastplate of righteousness. Here, it's a breastplate of faith and love. And as a helmet, the hope of salvation. In Ephesians 6, it's salvation. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, it's the hope of salvation. He's employing imagery that denotes strength in who Christ is and what he's done, and he'll employ it in different ways. Romans 13, 12. He says, the night is almost gone, the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. In Ephesians, it's called the armor of God. Here, it's called the armor of light. Jesus is the light of the world. It's, it's imagery, it's metaphor, it's figurative language. It's getting us to think about the wonderful strength and promises and provision that we have and who Christ is and what he's done for us. All of this armor language is a way to talk about identifying with Christ, his character, and his work, and his purposes. It's metaphor. It's not magic. I want you to remember that. It's, it's more real than anything else in the world. But it's not a magic helmet. It's metaphorical language for something that Christ has really done for us. So that begins to beg the question then. The armor of God, having to do with God's own armor from Isaiah, the provision of armor for the Christian, 
Christ himself on us, this great armor that allows us to stand firm. How do we don it? How do we put it on? How do we, as the passage says, take up the full armor of God? This is a good question. How do we take up the full armor of God? Do we... Don't answer. Let me answer. Just kidding. How do we take up the full armor of God? Do we pray it on? Or is it something to be acted upon? Okay, now I want us to think. Do we pray it on? Or is it something to be acted upon? Because oftentimes we, including myself, Christians, we pray, Lord, I just ask that you'd put the helmet of salvation on me and I pray on the breastplate of righteousness and I I pray for myself the the belt of truth and, and we pray those things. But remember, what Paul is giving us here is metaphor, not magic. So, so it's more than merely prayer. There, merely prayer. There is something substantive, real, regarding the work of Christ behind it. It's not that we pray for a helmet of salvation and there's a magical, invisible helmet on our head that the enemy can't get through. He's like, oh no, they prayed on the helmet. I can't do anything. <laughs> How do we put on the armor? It's more than something we pray on. It is something that we act upon. Listen to me. Each peach of... Peach. Jeez. Each peach is delicious. Each piece... Put the sentence on the screen for you so I could say it. Each piece of the armor represents to us, number one, something to be believed... And number two, something to be obeyed. Each piece of the armor represents to us and presents to us something to be believed and something to be obeyed. It's not merely a prayer that we say. There must be this understanding and this intention behind the prayer. Let me give you an example. Let's say that the enemy accuses you. Has that ever happened to anybody here? Satan accuses you? Is it just me? Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us. He accuses others in the community before us. He accuses us even before the throne of God we see in scripture. He's called the accuser of the brethren. We talked about last week. Leave that last screen up, please. We talked about last week the fact that Satan, the dirty scoundrel, tempts us to sin. And then when we give in, accuses us of the very thing that we've done, right? Anybody ever fallen into this, right? Tempts us to sin. Now, we should be clear. There's two things to remember about temptation. Number one, it's not only Satan that tempts us. We're tempted by our own sinful nature. James chapter one makes that clear. We're tempted by our own thoughts and our own lusts, and they they begin to carry us away. So we can't blame every temptation on Satan. It's not a sin to be tempted. It is a sin to give in and to go in that direction. We're tempted by the enemy, we're tempted by the flesh, we're tempted by various things that we see, so on and so forth. The enemy tempts us, we can be tempted by our sinful nature. But the other important thing to remember about temptation is God has put parameters on temptation. Thank you, Jesus. We talked about this last week, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You should memorize this one. This is important when you're being tempted. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overcome you 
except for that which is common to man. Right? So there's no way in which we're being tempted that all of our friends aren't being tempted into. That's kind of comforting, right? Like, wow, we're, okay, we're all dealing with this. So maybe community is important. Maybe since we're all dealing with this, we should deal with it together and be honest for once. Like, dude, do you ever struggle with this? No. <laughs> right? No. No temptation has overcome you except for that which is common to man. We're all tempted in these same areas. And we learned last week that the enemy tempts us in these three areas with regards to passions, possessions, and position. That's the way he tempted Eve in Genesis chapter 3. That's the way he tempted Jesus, who did not fall in Matthew chapter 4. And we read about that also in 1 John. He tempts us in the area of our passions, possessions, what they do to our heart, and the longing for position, pride, the boastful pride of life. But no temptation has overcome us except for that which is common to man. We're all in it together. Then the verse says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, But God is faithful, who will not let you be tempted beyond that which you are able to bear. Oh man, that's good news. It's good news and it's bad news. It's bad news because you can no longer say the devil made me do it. You can't say that. Not in light light of the cross and the resurrection and the armor of God provided for you. You can no longer say the devil made me do it. No. The book is telling us that we can actually resist. We can truly stand firm with the armor of God and because God has in his grace in this age put parameters on temptation. So back to the verse, 1 Corinthians 13. No temptation has overcome you except for that which is common to man. But God is faithful who will not let you be tempted beyond that which you're able to bear. We can truly stand firm. And then it finishes by saying, and with that temptation, he will provide the way out also. There's always a way of escape. It's never a dead end end row when you belong to Christ. There is always a way out. And it always has to do with the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth of the word of God, and the very armor of God that we're speaking about. So, back before I went on that rabbit trail, I said this. Has the enemy ever accused you? One of his tactics is to tempt us, to get us to fail, and then accuse us in this way. You call yourself a Christian. You'll never get victory in this area. You'll always be trapped in this. You'll always be addicted to that. That will always be your identity. How could God ever accept you? Accusations. Now, We have for accusations provided for us a piece of armor. We'll study it in depth in a few weeks, but this is just an example of how each piece of armor represents to us something to be believed and something to be obeyed. When the enemy accuses us, we have the breastplate of righteousness. Now, if we just merely pray, God, I just pray for the breastplate of righteousness, and we just let it be some magical incantation, that's, that's not enough. There's something substantive behind it. There's something to be believed. What is to be believed in the moment of accusation when we're looking for that breastplate of righteousness? That Christ is our righteousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who knew no sin, Christ, to become sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him that Christ's righteousness has been credited to our account, imputed righteousness, it's called. He lived a perfect life because we couldn't. 
So our merit before God now has to do with Christ's record, his obedience to the Father and not our own. Imputed righteousness. So when we're being accused by the enemy and he says, God could never accept you now. The breastplate of righteousness is something to be believed in. That Christ died in my place that I might become the righteousness of God in him. Yes, enemy. I know that I did that. But because of what Christ has done for me, I now stand justified and holy and righteous before the Father. Oh my goodness. Every piece of armor represents for us something to be believed, but don't stop there. How do we put on the armor? We believe the truth that is associated with it, and then we act upon the truth that is associated with it. This may be one of the most important things I'll say today. With regards to righteousness, we have not only in our lives imputed righteousness, but we are to be pursuing practical righteousness. Positionally, because of what Christ has done, we're righteous before God. Practically, because of what Christ has done, we want to begin to live in a righteous way before God. So, something to be obeyed. One of the greatest things you can do in spiritual warfare, one of the most powerful things you can do to cut off the work of the enemy, to get him out of your face, to remove him from that place, to thwart the plans of the enemy, one of the most powerful, surefire things you could ever do is obey God. Some of us have so much trouble happening with the enemy right now because obedience isn't even on our radar. Some of us make decisions, yours truly included, that are rebellious to God's revealed truth in the way that the Spirit is leading us and we persist in rebellion and we do exactly what we know we're not supposed to do and then we wonder why we're getting kicked around by the enemy. How do you put on the, tr- the, 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 the armor? Something to believe, something to be believed, and something to be obeyed. So when the enemy is accusing you, you say, nope, I am standing firm and the righteousness of Christ on my behalf. And then I am standing firm by pursuing righteousness. Stop doing that thing that he's accusing you of. (gasps) What a revelation. (laughs) Oh my goodness. You mean if I didn't do it, he couldn't accuse me of it? Precisely. Wow. That's how we begin to put on the armor. To believe the right thing according to the word of God and behave the right way according to the word of God. You see how it's not merely prayer? You can't just pray it on. There's got to be a substantive determination behind it. I'm going to stand firm in the truth of what Christ has done for me. me, And I'm going to stand firm in obeying what he's calling me to do. And that is just, it it just decimates the work of the enemy in the life of the believer. Through the thing that is to be believed, we overcome his schemes. And through behaving, we remove his accusations. Now, It says to take up the full armor of God. That call is a call to be ready. 
When a soldier would don the full armor, he was ready. Right? If you saw the soldier approach you, you know, oh my gosh, there must be a battle going on or, or some sort of conflict or, or something happening. He's in full regalia. He's, he's, he's fully ready for battle. To put on the full armor of God means to be ready. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. There is coming a day when Christ comes again, when we will all just wear robes of glory. Huh? Robes of glory. Listen. When we're with Christ and having a renewed creation, no one's going to have to put on the armor. Robes of glory. What do robes denote? Resting. You wear robes at the spa. You wear robes at bedtime. You wear a robe on the couch in the morning with your coffee. It's, it's peace. It's relaxation. It's resting in the finished work of God when Christ comes again to restore all things. One day we will all be together in our robes. Yeah. But that day is not yet. And so the call now is that we all together need to be in full armor. And all of these commands in Ephesians chapter 6 are in the plural. Every one of them is you all together need to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. You all together. It's hard to see it in the English, but in the Greek it's there. All of us together need to resist him. All of us together need to put on the armor. Because we're not called to be lone, sold, lone soldier, lone ranger Christians. We're called to community. And, and some of the very armor of, of the Roman soldier, which is some of the imagery being employed here by Paul, was meant for fighting together. Two-thirds of his shield was for his body. The other third was for the body next to him, his fellow soldiers. And they, they would huddle together and advance together. That's what we're called to do. We experience the strength of the Lord and of his might in community. That means that we all have this responsibility to be putting on the full armor of God and to be living in a way which realizes, yes, one day we'll get robes, but right now we are called to armor. That's why 1 Peter 5.8 says, be on the alert. Be of sober spirit because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him firm in your faith. We're called to be alert, on guard. The enemy is coming against us. And in that, we need the full armor, right? So it may be that we're believing correctly and acting rightly with the helmet of salvation, but we're not believing and acting rightly in the area of truth or the word of God. And so now we're subject to deception. 1 Timothy 4.1, but the spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. You know, one of the enemy's greatest schemes is to deceive us, to get us believing and acting in wrong ways with regards to God and who he is, you and who you are before him in Christ and one another and who we are in the community of faith. The enemy is always attacking those things, the identity of God, you, and the community. And so we could have part of the armor, so to speak, the helmet of salvation, but we don't have the belt of truth or the sword of the spirit. And so we're falling to false doctrine. 
to wrong belief or insufficient belief. This is why, brothers and sisters, can I say it again for the three millionth week in a row? We must read our Bibles. It's, it's not a negotiable. You cannot be a Christian and say, well, I'm just, I'm not going to read my Bible. You, you just, you can't. I adjure you, you can not do that because we are all called together to put on the full armor together and there is no way to believe right and to act right unless we're saturated in the word of God. We must be in the word of God so that we can stand firm and resist together against the schemes of the enemy. Now, what then does the armor do for us? The last part of the verse says, having then done everything to stand firm. This armor that we'll study over the next few weeks is just an introduction. Allows us to be victorious in Christ over the schemes of the enemy. We truly can be victorious in Christ. It says again, last part of verse 13, having done everything to stand firm. The idea there is accomplished done, successful, victorious. Take up the full armor of God. And in doing that, you've done everything to be successful in resisting the enemy, to get the victory in Christ, to stand firm. The armor of God allows us to be victorious. Now, when you read through the armor, a lot of people read it and they say, oh, well, it's mostly defensive. Other than the sword, right, which is the word of God, it's mostly defensive. And we, we look at that and we think, well, it's mostly defensive stuff. But I, I want you to think differently now. I want you to remember that Paul called it a struggle, a wrestling. Imagine that you're wrestling with someone in this armor. Okay, remember What's at stake? Paul employed the imagery of wrestling in the first century Olympic games where the loser has his eyes gouged out. Man, you are going to wrestle like you've never wrestled before. Like, dude, I ain't losing my eyes. You're going away blind. Therefore, in such a struggle, in such a battle, you will be using everything you have as an offensive weapon. You got a helmet? Headbutt. Right? You got the gospel peace on your feet? Bam! Face kick. You got a breastplate of righteousness? Bam! Body slam. Everything becomes offensive in this sort of struggle. Don't think of these things as merely defensive. These truly are offensive. Now, beyond the cute illustration, let, let me explain to you. We have the belt of truth that we'll look at next week, the belt of truth. It's not only defensive against the lies of the enemy, but when the truth goes forward, the enemy is pushed back. Telling the truth is pulling the rug out from underneath the enemy. We'll look at the breastplate of righteousness. It's not only to help us to stand firm against the accusations of the enemy, but when we live righteously, the plans of the enemy for us and our families are thwarted. You see, it's offensive, telling the truth, living righteously, preaching the gospel, preaching the word, the shield of faith. All of these things push back the enemy to stand firm against. 
is to stand in front of with the intent of opposing. It's not that you come against this soldier and he's just going to let you push him around. He is going to push you back with his shield and his helmet and his breastplate and cut you down with the sword. Every bit of what's provided for us in God is offensive against the enemy. Truth, righteousness, salvation, peace, faith, the word, and the most powerful of all, prayer. Speaking of prayer in 2 Corinthians 10, it says, Our weapon is divinely powerful before God for tearing down strongholds. Tearing down strongholds. When we pray, we are plugging into the very power of God. That is why we pray. That is why we call the church to prayer. The last thing it says, we'll get to that though when we get to verse 18. But the last thing it says there is that you will be able to resist in the evil day. What an interesting phrase, in the evil day. You know what, let's be honest. There's good days, there's bad days, and there's evil days. There really are. For culture as a whole, for a nation, for the world, in the minutia of our lives, there are evil days. And there's evil nights. There's nights where I've woken up blinded by the enemy, feeling as though I'm being choked, terrified. There's nights that I've walked into my children's room and there's clear presence of demons and it feels like white, hot, dark electricity. I've got to deal with that through spiritual battle. There's days where we feel the oppression of the enemy manifesting great temptation or in confusion, or in anger. The enemy will oppress us. There's days where people that we loved are diagnosed with life-threatening diseases. There's days of great moral failure on our part. There are days of great evil. In the armor of God, allows us to resist and to stand firm in the day of evil. That's why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you may be here today and you're saying, whoa, whoa, wait, Pastor Britt, you dealt with that? Like you woke up in the middle of the night feeling like you were being choked and blinded? By the enemy? Yeah. You mean you've gone into your kid's room and you've had them screaming and there's some demonic presence in there? Absolutely. Have you ever felt that sort of oppression where it's just palpable and you wake up and there's this weightiness upon you this, or this, this, this strange, irrational fear? Yeah. I've dealt with those things. Listen. Every time I've ever dealt with one of those things, I needed someone else to come alongside me and help me in prayer. That's why this is all in the plural. That's why at the end of it, Paul says, pray at all times for all the saints. So you may be here saying today, wow, I'm experiencing some of those things and so much more. And we'll get into more of it in the weeks to come. You need prayer. There will be a prayer team up here and they're ready, anointed by God, powerful in the spirit to pray for you. You guys can pray for one another. I have never 
I have never in my life won a significant spiritual battle without prayer assistance. Intercessors that are praying, people laying hands on me and praying, the community coming around and praying. We need each other to tap into the power of God through prayer. You may have an oppression that's been following you around for years. Brothers and sisters, we'll lay hands on you today. And believe in what Christ has done for you and ask him to break that oppression in the powerful work in the name of Jesus. So much of spiritual warfare is a war of attrition. A war of attrition, right? It's who can hold out the longest. Sometimes a spiritual attack is, is so long and so strong, I just get tired and I just want to give in and give up. But there's two promises that help me in that. Number one, Put on the full armor, therefore, that you may be able to resist in the day of evil, having done everything to stand firm. There's a promise that I don't have to give in or give up. I could stand firm. And the second promise is this, James 4, 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. If it comes down to a war of attrition, who can hold out the longest? We win. We win. Stand firm. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. The flip side of that coin is, Give in to the devil and he'll cling to you. The biggest doorway for Satan in our life is persistent sin. So today, church, if we need to repent, repent. If you need help in prayer, get help in prayer. If you need to believe something is true about God and act in a way that honors God, do that because Christ has provided for us the victory. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord. Help us, Lord. Help us to walk in the glorious victory and finish work of Jesus Christ. Lord, I just feel for my brothers and sisters here, I know the schemes of the enemy against us. I know what they're like. And we're asking that you would do a work even today of setting us free and breaking off every way that the enemy is coming against us. Lord, if you're calling us to persevere, then give us strength according to your might. Teach us to begin to wear the armor. Teach us to stand firm and resist. Teach us to get the victory in prayer. But help us now, Lord, to experience all that you have for us. Christ, you have hope for us. The enemy wants to make us hopeless. You have freedom from condemnation. He wants us in shame and guilt. You have peace. He wants us anxious and angry. You have joy. He wants us depressed and despondent. We see and we feel these things. Lord, help us. Teach us to walk in your victory as a community. Teach us to help one another, Lord. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen.